Your entire life you've been told to save. But has anyone helped you figure out how to spend? With Fidelity Income Planning, get help creating a personalized plan for cash flow even when you're not working. One that includes your 401k and all your other accounts. Make informed decisions that best fit your life ahead, whether one-on-one or through our planning tools. Learn more at fidelity.com slash income planning. Advisory services provided by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC for a fee. Brokerage services by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, April 30th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. And if you want an ad-free version of the show, just pledge $5 or more per month at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Do you think the Nobel Prize is good for science? Well, I certainly think it brings a lot of attention to science, which is probably good for science. I mean, the Nobel Prize is the Nobel Prize of prizes, right? I mean, you can't discount the name and like the cultural value. Everyone knows what a Nobel Prize is. Um, But do the Nobel Prizes make sense under the current rules? Let's take example. uh, Last year, the prize in Phoenix went to uh, the people behind the LIGO project, the one that found gravitational waves. The rules state only three people can be awarded the prize itself, even though we know probably thousands of people worked on that project, let alone the engineers that probably constructed the the instrument and whatnot. And one of the chief architects of the project, Ron Drever, actually sadly passed away a few months before the award announcement. And another rule is that the Nobel Prize can't be awarded posthumously. I sort of think those roles are antiquated because it perpetuates an idea of a, a lone genius in science. Yeah, which I think is becoming less and less true as the tools that we use uh, as scientists become more and more complicated, uh, demand more and more, you know, people. I do think there's a halo effect. So, you know, if you even if you didn't win the Nobel Prize, but you worked on LIGO um, or, you know, if you were in the lab of somebody who won the Nobel Prize, there is some, you know, kind of reflected glory upon you. The posthumous thing, you know, I'm of two minds on that. I mean, yes, it means that it's not, you know, going to be totally a meritocracy uh, because there are going to be people who died, uh, you know, like uh, uh, not just uh, Ron Ron Drever, but another example is Amos Tversky. So Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize, but not Amos. you know, but Daniel Kahneman also lived longer and went on to do other things. <laughs> so you could argue that, you know, it was, it was in some ways more deserved. I don't know. But I do think that there's something nice about it's something sciencey about the fact that, you know, the Nobel Prize really doesn't help the person if they're dead. Um, it might help their estate. It might help their reputation, but it doesn't help that person. And I kind of like that, I have to say. Oh, fair enough. I mean, but you have to agree that the Nobel Prize has a historical problem, too. Uh, it's been award- awarded to very few women. 
over over its history. And, you know, chief among them that Rosalind Franklin was never recognized for her contributions to the discovery of DNA. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, we could we could do tit for tats on this all the time. Then there's Marie Curie, right, who won two Nobel Prizes, who, you know, very few people in, in whether they're male or female have done. And, you know, I think there, I think science has a women problem in history. So I don't know that it's specific to the Nobel Prize. I think that it's it's more of a reflection of, of how science really does reward people who have been around a long time and have gotten a lot of funding and have, you know, developed their own prestige. And if that happens to be predominantly male in science and there, you know, there's evidence that 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 sh- that's not you know merit based, I think that's a problem with science, but not with Nobel. Fair enough. But this argument comes up every year when the awards are announced. Science writers and and science Twitter especially seems to go off into this into this conversation about whether or not we need to reform it. And so this week I interviewed someone that came close. Uh, except things went very, very wrong afterwards. Uh, Brian Keating is a professor of astrophysics at UC San Diego. He's one of the leaders behind the BICEP experiment in Antarctica and its successor, BICEP-2, which searched for a signature kind of wiggle in the cosmic microwave background that would confirm the theory of inflation, a period in the very, very early universe, and where there was rapid expansion, which explained sort of our large-scale scale structure of the cosmos. Brian is the author of a new book called Losing the Nobel Prize about what went wrong after the detection was made at BICEP2 and how that made him rethink the pursuit of the grandest prize in all of science. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Brian Keating. Brian Keating, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Keyshore. Let's start with one of the, I think, weirdest astrophysics phenomenon, which is the question that starts like this. What happened right after the Big Bang? Yeah, that is an amazing question. Of course, it's only superseded in uh, intrigue to me by what happened 15 minutes before the Big Bang. But since you asked, I will tell you that astronomers understand the properties of the universe, at least in a bulk form in a bulk fashion. We understand the, um, the, the evolution of the universe uh, up to going back in time, if you will, from now back to about three minutes after the Big Bang. So the Big Bang is, is you know, thought to be either the origin of the universe or what followed the origin of the universe's inflationary expansion epoch. So for many years, the Big Bang was sort of very frustratingly uh, positioned in science. We understood how things like the elements formed in the Big Bang model. We understood that it had outlasted the rival theory of cosmogenesis known as the steady state theory. Uh, But there were still so many glaring holes in the Big Bang model, and some of which persist to this day, that cosmologists have always been a little bit uncomfortable with it because it seemed to imply a physical state of the universe very much unlike anything that modern day physical phenomena can can reproduce. So we believe the universe kind of came into existence at a time 13.82 billion years ago. Sometimes that's called the Big Bang itself. Um, and that the universe 
the properties of the universe were sort of forged and cast at that moment. And nowadays we look for the shrapnel of this, of this very violent process. And the shrapnel can come in many forms. It can come in the form of heat and light. It can come in the form of uh, exotic particles. And it can come in the form of waves of gravity. And all of them came together and uh, in the experiment that I describe in my book to, to allow us to take a peek under the veil at perhaps what the origin of the universe actually looked like if you could have witnessed it. Let's dive a little bit further into inflation theory, which is sort of the underpinning of this book. And and this is, uh, when I say theory, I really mean the word theory here, because it was sort of birthed by uh, some theoretical physicists. Like, we really don't know via experimental evidence what happened in that time. And, And this has been a quest and a hunt for a long period of time. But there's this period where there's this rapid expansion of the universe. And Talk a little bit more in depth why this has been so particularly interesting, why this has been sort of like a, a white whale for physicists. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, I sometimes describe it as, you know, the Moby Dick of cosmology, this, this, this uh, quest to understand what was this period of inflation really like. So I liken inflation to a spark and that spark ignited the explosion, which we would later call the hot big bang or or just the big bang. But you're right. When we say theory, sometimes we say theory, we say theory of relativity. Um, But that should not be, or the theory of evolution. But those are very, very firmly established uh, theoretical constructs that match up very well with the experimental evidence and observational evidence that we have at our disposal. On the other hand, the theory of inflation uh, is no one theory. It would be as if there were many different theories of relativity where the speed of light could have many different values, perhaps an infinite number of different values, depending on the circumstance. So to call you know, the theory of inflation and the theory of relativity by the same name is kind of uh, does a disservice, I think, to both, because it really is a broad class of ideas and models that have, unfortunately, Uh, a lot of, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, they have a lot of circumstantial evidence in their favor, but just the circumstantial evidence is not enough to, you know, acquit somebody or to prove somebody guilty in court of law. So too, does the evidence that we have extant today is not, it's not dispositive. It does not prove or disprove. It's consistent with inflation, but what cosmologists really hunted they really were seeking, and it really drove us to aspire to make this measurement, was direct physical evidence of the inflationary origin of the universe that would, was hypothesized to come in the form of these ancient fossil relics called gravitational waves. And that's what we went hunting for, and we eventually claimed that we did see. And you are part of the team that really came up with the experimental design around the BICEP instrument. And uh, I think when you talk about this this instrument and this detector, um, it begins with how much effort was put into putting this instrument in a place in the far reaches of the Earth in order to do what it needed to do. That's right. Yeah. So microwave astronomy, which is the branch of physics that I am an experimentalist within, we seek to measure the heat left over from the Big Bang. That's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. So it's in the form of microwave photons, if you will, or microwave uh, portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. And these are waves that have a typical characteristic wavelength of about two millimeters. 
these photons are actually the most abundant photons in the universe. So nearby the Earth, you have the sun produces most of the light photons that we see, and those are much shorter wavelength photons. But if you go into deep intergalactic space and you have a tiny one centimeter cube box, and you ask the question, how many photons are in that box? Most of those photons, 419 of the photons that are in there, and there might only be 426 uh, in there, depending on where you are, but the dominant, the, the lion's share of those photons came from the Big Bang. Now, these microwave photons are similar, a little bit shorter in wavelength than the microwaves that your microwave oven produces. You know, so I always joke, you know, everybody's got a microwave generator in their kitchen, but, you know, very few people have a gamma ray or an optical generator uh, within, uh, within, at their disposal. So the microwave oven that you use works on the principle that microwaves are absorbed extremely well by water molecules. Water molecules, when impinged upon by microwaves, uh, resonate, they vibrate, they, uh, they cause friction with one another, and that's what causes your food. Your food has water within it, and that, that's why you could put a ceramic coffee cup in the microwave for 10 minutes, and you can still pull out the uh, coffee cup ceramic mug, but you can't touch the water because it's superheated above the boiling temperature, you know, possibly. So water absorbs microwaves. Therefore, where you'd like to build your microwave telescope is a place where there's no water vapor. Namely, you'd like to build it in outer space. But I always say when people ask me, you know, why didn't you put bicep in outer space? And I say, well, why didn't you give me a billion dollars to do that? Because it's extremely expensive to build a satellite. And to date, there's only been three satellites ever built in the 50 years of exploring the cosmic microwave background because they're so expensive. Instead, a poor scientist version of it or a less, you know, flush scientist version of uh, minimal water vapor that's still accessible on the earth is the South Pole Antarctica. So many people may have seen pictures of Antarctica. Usually you're seeing penguins and, and maybe you see some snow and some coastline. But at the South Pole, the South Pole has, has, very, has you know, a, a two-mile thick sheet of ice between the continental shelf and the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. That means you're above about 40% of the Earth's atmosphere pressure. And you're also above 40% or so of its water vapor. So you're close to space, but you can get there, you know, in a week's time via cargo planes and, and military uh, flights that are orchestrated and organized by the National Science Foundation. So it's accessible, and yet it has conditions that are, are quite um, uh, uh, amazing for astronomy. For one thing, if you go to the South Pole, no astronomical objects besides the sun, the moon, and the planets, no astronomical objects ever set. Or rise. They just make these long, lazy circles over your head all year round, all day and all night. And speaking of day and night, there's only one day and one night all year at the South Pole. So for six months of the year, the sun is below the horizon, which makes it a paradise for doing astronomy. So th this uh, experiment, which was heralded as, as quite an achievement to even have this thing built, um, because it was a, a new form of of uh, of a, a detector. It was in a location that we had never been able to build something like this before. It it goes into operation, and and after a period of time, it go, undergoes some upgrades. And this is a pretty typical process for a lot of uh, detectors like this. Um, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit to a specific date, March seventeenth, twenty fourteen. Do you remember that date by any chance? No, I don't, because it was St. Patrick's Day, and I was totally blitzed. No, of course I remember that. That was the <laughs> day that uh, a press conference was held at Harvard University to 
herald the announcement that BICEP2 had detected these birth pangs of the Big Bang, namely gravitational waves from inflation. And I want to, I want you to contextualize that for us, like uh, not only as somebody that's worked on the on this project. Uh, what did it feel like as somebody who's dedicated his life to science and, and physics uh, to know that this was happening, that this press conference had been called? Uh, like, what was going through your mind at that point? It was pretty surreal. You know, I started my astronomical career, uh, such as it was, uh, as a 13-year-old with a tiny two-inch diameter refracting telescope, uh, not unlike the, the exact uh, type of telescope that Galileo Galilei used in 1609 to first look up at the heavens uh, with a telescope. And, you know, I just thought back at the time how what BICEP2 was, was also a Galilean refracting telescope. Instead of being connected to the human eyeball and the human retina, it was connected to superconducting sensors that operated just a whisker above absolute zero. And it was just so phenomenal to me that these two telescopes connected across the centuries had so many things in common and yet spoke to this most human urge to want to understand how did we get here and, and what lies beyond the limits of what we can see with our naked eye. And the augmented reality that both Galileo's telescope and, and the BICEP2 telescope provided to humanity to understand our place in the cosmos that much more, it was, it was completely surreal. And it was only a couple of months after Galileo's 450th birthday. You know, he, he was getting a little bit old and long in the tooth by that point. But uh, he was born February 15th, and, and we had our announcement on March 17th, and it was exactly 450 years after his birth. So to me, there were so many surreal parallels that I was just as astonished and delighted and tickled pink that we had made this, this discovery. And what a long way this 13-year-old boy had gone uh, with, uh, with the benefit of telescopic vision. And with a project like this, it, it, it's not quite like the Olympics, where where everyone that participated is sort of up there on stage. Uh, you weren't even in Boston that day for the, for the announcement. There's thousands of people that obviously worked on the uh, on this project that touched it in different ways. What did it feel like to not be there when it was happening? Did you did did you still feel that sense of like pride and and uh, accomplishment as they're making this this sort of legendary announcement? Yeah, I did. I definitely felt uh, pride in it. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel a sense of jealousy, a sense of being a little bit, you know, humiliated when my, uh, you know, my kids' teachers and my my uh, friends and my mother's, uh, you know, mahjong partners were asking me questions about, you know, I thought Brian was building a telescope at the South Pole, and you know, having it on the front page of the New York Times, my hometown newspaper. And, and seeing, you know, seeing it splashed across the front page and, you know, all my relatives in New York asking, well, how come you're not even mentioned? And, you know, I explore in the book and since that time, you know, some of the motivations for perhaps why that happened. And, you know, I've certainly come to grips and to peace with it now. But at the time, I was, it was very, it was a very hurtful, a little bit shameful, embarrassing moment for me. And, it was actually at that time that I came up with the idea for the title of my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, in that, you know, one way or another, I was going to lose this prize. 
And it, it could either be because, you know, I wasn't at this famous touted press conference at, at Harvard, or maybe it would be because we would turn out not to be right. And at the time, you know, I, I had this terrible mixture of emotions and some of them were more base, as I, as I just said. I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I love this book is because you're really honest about those emotions, like that you weren't in that room when they're making this this sort of stunning announcement. Uh, I remember when this this announcement was was coming across, um, you know, my plate, my world is I, I remember Stanford re- releasing this video uh, of a the researcher that was on the team knocking on the door of Andre Linde's uh, house. And he is one of the theorists that was involved in in, in coming up with the, this inflationary theory and and telling them that we they'd made this discovery and and sort of like the shock and almost disbelief on his face when when it was said, um, and just the exultation from the field that came with that, um, like that that you had achieved like a once in a generation thing, and. Um, I don't know how to relate this to the audience. Like it is a rare thing to see physicists elated like this. <laughs> yeah. I always say, you know, it's, it's a, when you have a press conference, it's kind of a risky proposition because, you know, if you're right, you're going to be so busy after you win the Nobel prize, uh, you're never going to get a moment's peace. And in fact, T.S. Eliot, a winner of the Nobel prize in literature once said that the Nobel Prize is a ticket to your funeral because you never get to do anything after you win it. So if you're right, you'll never get to do the research that you love so much you dedicated decades of your life to. And if you're wrong, no one's ever going to come to your next press conference, are they? So it's a, it's a mixed bag. But yeah, I mean, being in that, seeing the, the production of these videos and, and how viral these things went on that day, and, you know, I mean, I also, as, as base as my emotions may have been, I also did feel elation. I felt a sense of, of great uh, gratitude that I was able to participate in such a finding. And also for the memory of my late uh, mentor, Andrew Lang, who just a few short weeks after we got Bicep 2 working, took his own life. And, and perhaps if he were alive at the time of the announcement, five, four years after his, his life was ended tragically short, you know, maybe things would have happened differently, but we'll, we'll never know. But at the time, I just wished and I missed him so much. And I wanted him to be there uh, to celebrate in the cosmic fanfare of it all. I think that that shows how much you had at, at stake in, the, in this announcement. When did you start to get the first indications that something had gone wrong? So what we ended up doing is when we made the announcement, we tried to convince ourselves that the data that we had seen, we knew that it could possibly be corrupted by, not by, you know, a blunder, leaving the lens cap on or not connecting a fiber optic cable or something. Uh, And in any event, it was too late to do anything about it anyway, because that experiment had been decommissioned years before the 2014 announcement. But leading up to the announcement on March 17, 2014, we debated whether or not we actually were seeing the signal that would indicate inflation took place and the stakes were incredibly high for that. So we tried to rule out all the imposter signals that could masquerade as the cosmic uh, polarization signal that we ended up claiming we saw. And indeed, one of the signals that was most prominent at our attention was this contribution from 
you know, the most humble overlooked substance in the galaxy, which is the galaxy's dust. And galactic dust is very important. I mean, the Earth, planet Earth is essentially a giant dust ball floating around the sun. Uh, and, you know, cosmic dust from, uh, from ancient supernovae flow through our veins in the form of iron. So we all knew that there was a contaminatory effect that could take place from our galaxy. We thought we could rule it out using mathematical modeling and the best understood theory that we had at the time for the way that dust could contaminate the signals that we saw. Uh, but in the end, we decided to use a stolen slide, a picture of a slide that had been basically digitized, converted from PowerPoint to raw data, uh, and it made a lot of us uncomfortable. And in particular, I recount in the book how many of us went back and forth about this. Is this proper scientific etiquette to behave in such a way? Is it ethical to use another scientist data that was stamped right on top of it, you know, not to be used? Um, and yet we sort of took advantage of that. <clears throat> and when we did, we committed one of cosmology's gravest sins, which is, which is confirmation bias, that you end up having a tendency to accept evidence that comports with your narrative, with your hypothesis, with the very thing you're seeking to detect, be it for the scientific process or maybe lesser things like the Nobel Prize. And in the end, I think that's exactly what happened with us. We, we were able to use this clandestinely obtained slide to convince ourselves to go forward with the press release. And just a few months after we made this, we made this decision, uh, we, uh, we actually went public and, and released these data. And that's when everything started to go downhill. Because at that point, other people start scrutinizing the work. Uh, you start scrutinizing the work in, uh, in, a, in a different way because it's time to sort of publish the data, not just issue the press release. Um, what do you do in this case? Like, what do you do when you know you've made a mistake? And not just any mistake, a mistake at, at basically at the, at the highest point of physics. We're, we're, we're at this point where you have to retract evidence of one of the most uh, you know, important theories in cosmology in the last you know, 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think it was, a, it was a very terrifying summer. So we released the paper on the internet before it was submitted for peer review. Uh, it went through several months of back and forth, and immediately after publication, there were critics criticizing it and saying that we had seen other signals, and we actually were able to address those, although it was kind of like drinking from a fire hose. There were so many people that were trying to, in, you know, in our original thinking, they were trying to glom on to our success or maybe take us down a little bit, uh, because there's there's a lot of jealousy. There was a lot of co competition to to see the signal, to win this prize, and, and to and to be the one who had scientific priority. I mean, that's nothing new. Scientists have been competitive for centuries, and for in our case, we squash those uh, you know claimed rumors of of making uh, a misobservation early on. So the first kind of claims against us, you know, some of them were pretty exotic that we had seen, you know the very exotic phenomena, cosmic strings and, and, and evidence for, for odd, you know, string gases and all sorts of things or exotic magnetic fields at work. So those would still be big news. Um, and then, and then we kind of refuted those early on. And then some people said uh, that we saw uh, emission from the galaxy at very low frequencies that we misinterpreted as, as a, as a signal um, of the kind that we look for. We ruled those out. 
Uh, but then we start to get inkling of a group at Princeton led by Raphael Flauger, David Spurgel, and Colin Hill uh, that had said that we actually missed this uh, interpretation of the slide that we had stolen or, you know, in some sense or embargoed it or, or done, you know, taken it without permission at least. And that that slide um, had a warning label printed on it, uh, not unlike a certain general warning, and that we didn't heed that, and that there were actually other signals lurking beneath the signal that we saw that could at least account for this, the entirety of the signal that we saw. And so that occurred in June and July, and by that time we were giving as many, you know, kind of um, scientific uh, speeches at scientific workshops that were, you know, kind of excited about the results and wanting to hear about how we made this triumphant discovery. And the other half of the time, we were fending off critics in the audience who were saying that we misinterpreted what we saw. So it was a very stressful summer. And by September, so just six months later, there was a paper put out by our ARCH competitor, which is the Planck satellite, this billion euro satellite launched uh, beyond the orbit of the moon. And this satellite had not seen the signal of inflation, although they had hoped they would see it, uh, but they had instead made a very accurate measurement of the Milky Way's dust contamination. And they released a, a map or, or, or some, uh, you know, rather a um, uh, data in our exact observation field over the South Pole that, that we had observed for three years with BICEP2. And they said that their probability that it had a contaminating signal equal to or maybe even greater than the bicep signal was, was, you know, there were comparable explanations for the signal that we saw. And at that point, many people said things were, we were done for. Uh, and it really wasn't uh, much longer after that that we decided instead of competing with Planck, we would share data with Planck and, and have a jointly analyzed result that ended up coming out in early 2015. So less than a year after the March you know, 17th announcement, we essentially retracted the claim and we subtracted after subtracting out the contamination that Planck observed in the form of dust from the BICEP2 signal comprised of dust plus perhaps some signal from the inflationary epoch. And so what was left was essentially just an upper limit. It was, it was a tighter constraint, but it was now no longer a detection. Uh, and at that point, you know, I, I joke with people that you know, I've never seen a front page headline for a retraction. You know, you never see like front page, uh, you know, of, of the New York Times. Scientists retract thing last reported here uh, in March. And I do feel like, you know, I wish there was a way that we could do that, that you should have a budget in your experimental um, coffers, you know, in case you make an announcement and in case you do all this publicity that you, you keep some, some powder dry for, you know, potential retractions if you're not right. I, I want to juxtapose for the for the listeners. I I think what you're going for, like when you made this announcement, I think there was so many proclamations like this is going to win a Nobel Prize. This is one of the most important discoveries in physics in decades, and that chorus continued all the while along. It crumbled in your hands. The discovery just sort of slowly fell apart, and it. In a way, that's I think that set you up for 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 this book because like the Nobel Prize evaporated, but it seemed to have evaporated long before then. There's there seemed to this sense of like, uh, oh, the Nobel Prize is gone for this work, and Nobel Prize it was never really there for you. 
I want you to talk about like what your relationship to that prize was both during this time and, and after, because I think that sort of, you know, frames what comes next. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So the title is a double entendre, you know, part of it means my own personal uh, encounter and loss of the Nobel prize through, you know, both being kind of edged out of the top leadership in the case that it did turn out to be true or in the case that it was false, that nobody won the Nobel Prize, which is which is what actually happened. <laughs> but in the end, um, we uh, we were able to um, to pr- provide you know evidence jointly with Planck that what we had seen was not what we originally claimed, and we had to retract it. And in that process, I did start to notice the the looming shadow of Alfred Nobel, and things kind of came to a head for me in October of the year after we had released the date, October 2015, I was asked to nominate the 2016 Nobel Prize winners in physics. I received an official looking document, FedEx from Sweden. I don't know how they got my name. I don't know how they found out about me, but the committee seeks out experts around the world in certain subjects, and they ask them to uh, speculate on their choice for the Nobel Prize in physics. 2015 was my year, and it was to select the 2016 winners. And, you know, I'm an academic, right? So I I like to look at primary sources first and foremost. So when I got their letter and asked me to nominate the winners, I first went back to to Alfred Nobel's will. So Alfred Nobel invented dynamite, was one of the richest men in the world at the time, had no heirs, had no spouse, left all his money to this prize. The prize was meant to, to be given to, in Alfred's words, to a single person who in the preceding year via their discovery in physics, benefited humanity the most. So there were a couple things to unpack there. It basically was saying that Alfred Nobel wanted the prize to go to a single person whose work was done in the preceding year and had conferred the greatest benefit on humanity. Um, and that was sort of open to her interpretation. And the letter that they invited me to nominate, they, they essentially asked me, to disavow all three of Alfred Nobel's uh, desired uh, stipulations. Namely, they said it could go to multiple people. It could go for something uh, discovered decades earlier. And the interpretation as to how much benefit a discovery in astrophysics confers upon somebody is, uh, is really very debatable and very subjective. So I was sort of startled to learn that. And I had always thought the Nobel Prize is this you know, essentially an idol, you know, that, that many, not all scientists. It's the Nobel prize. Yeah. I mean, it's the Nobel prize and Nobel prize. Right. And people say to me, you know, Oh, you just have sour grapes. and You really, you know, are just bitter that you didn't win it. And I don't think anybody can come away from reading the book thinking that I believe this is a prize that I'm, you know, would, would seek to, I would sacrifice, you know, and aspire to anymore. I think it's at best a harmless game or, or, you know, kind of fun thing, but it's not, it's not, only that it's it's humanity's highest accolade that there is there's no no prize that's even close to a nobel prize not even oscar or olympic gold medal and so because of that i think it has a special responsibility to live up to the ideals and the and the values that alfred nobel wished for it to represent the fact that it doesn't has led people in the nobel peace prize you know community uh, so several Peace Prize laureates, Bishop Desmond Tutu and others, have sued the Nobel Committee for violating Alfred Nobel's will. 
And the case was thrown out in Stockholm because Bishop Tutu is not a resident of Sweden, and so therefore he has no jurisdiction over what happens to the press. So it's just ridiculous. Um, there have been calls recently to, you know, abolish uh, the Nobel Prize in Literature. It's, you may have heard it's undergoing a, a terrible sex scandal, where the, uh, the the female director of the Nobel Prize in, in Literature, her husband committed adultery, and for some reason they decided to fire her from her job. So uh, it's it's a very uh, interesting um, accolade, and I believe that it's become almost the equivalent of an idol, you know, ironically for mostly atheist practitioners of science. And I think this is where it gets really interesting in a lot of ways. Like, what happened before this it was exceptionally dramatic, um, but it's just it's also a little bit of part of how science works in modern times. Like, sometimes we get out ahead of our skis and fall down, um, and but there wasn't a cover-up. There was like a owning of the mistake. But what it shined a light on and something that's been coming out in science more and more is the pursuit of the Nobel um, is uh, the shine on that prize, like what it has stood for in, in common, in, in sort of like co- our common understanding isn't what it has meant. Um, it doesn't live up to um, what it is meant. And I think it's important to note a couple of things. Like they, they, the Nobel prize committee definitely does reach out to a lot of scientists um, for their input on the on the prize awards, including an, a number of, of of scientists throughout Europe, but I think there there's been problems highlighted this award for a long time now, probably in the last ten years, amongst the scientific community, that there can be no award posthumously made, which which is challenging. Um, I think it's cruel. I actually, have... I, I say in the book, I think it's cruel because it rewrites the way that science is conducted. Look, in 2017, the Nobel Prize went to the LIGO creators, uh, except for the fact that one of the creators had passed away six months earlier. And that rendered him, Ron Drever, forever invalidated from winning the prize. And to me, what's worse is when I tell my colleagues, well, I think Ron Draver should still win it. And they'll say, but he's dead, as if, as if the rules of this committee of you know, 500 mostly white Swedish men, really that their rulings and their arbitrary decisions are as inviolable as the laws of physics themselves. Like, who says they can't get it? I mean, they just made it up in 1974. They wouldn't give it to, except they have given it to dead Swedish men before. <laughs> so I, I, I worry for the prize. If I were the prize, I'd worry about, I'd worry about refer, reformation most of all. And then within physics itself, like if we just talk about LIGO, the prize went to three people, some great physicists, but Underpinning them was the work of thousands of scientists, graduate students, postdoctoral researchers, um, all the people that that did the funding, the engineering that went into the construction of yeah, it. Yeah, the electricians, uh, the pilots. And they're not the, part of the prize. Right. That's right. I mean, they are in terms of like the emotional resonance of the award, but they aren't in terms of the money and the actual recognition. And that's what you start to get to is there's a way that the prize recognizes the wrong things in modern science uh, that don't make sense in the way they may have when Alfred Nobel started the award. That's right. 
That's right. And, you know, again, when I went to nominate the winners of the 2016 prize, I not only went back to Alfred Nobel's will as a primary source, but I went back to the first Nobel Prize in physics. And that was given to Wilhelm Röntgen for an invention of, uh, of something that everybody's familiar with, the Röntgen ray, which is uh, another name for the X-ray. They called that uh, X-rays back then. Now, that had immediate benefit. The, within weeks of discovery, not just a year after discovery, but a weeks after discovery, doctors were using it. Uh, it had benefit to humanity, and uh, and it was done by a single person. So, and that discovery took place within days of Alfred Nobel writing down his will. So it's impossible to think that Alfred did not have in his mind this notion that science is done by lone geniuses working in isolation, and then that are have a have a goal of of creating an invention or a patent or something like that that will benefit humanity tangibly. And how far our science has come in the hundred and and, uh, and twenty two years since the will was written down is literally astronomical. So to to treat this this prize as if you can't modify it, I think it's demeaning to the actual scientific method. I will add, like, even though uh, Nobel had his own personal wishes around this, there's a way the award has what it's meant in society has transcended his own wishes, even though it still carries his name. And I realize there's a little dissonance there, but there's that story has repeated in society a lot. We often talk about it in the U.S. in the context of what did the framers mean when they wrote down the Constitution. But there's a way that we... We, we've sort of, uh, societies evolved past what they were able to envision. So moving beyond that, uh, I'm curious, putting aside what Alfred Nobel's intentions were, what would you do to fix this? Um, or is there even a fix for this? Well, yeah, very, very good question. In the book, I outline, you know, three specific problems with the prize that all relate to these three stipulations of the person, the preceding year, and the greatest benefit. <clears throat> and then I come up with uh, five projected reforms for the Nobel Prize. And I believe if they were to enact them, and I have communicated with members of the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences and the Physics Committee, and they agree with me. I wrote an op-ed for Scientific American in October, and, and they forwarded it amongst the Academy. I do not believe anything's going to come of it because the Nobel Prize is a monopoly. There's no second Nobel Prize. There's no close runner-up. Even the prizes that are worth millions of dollars more than the Nobel Prize, like the Breakthrough Prize, those pale in comparison. And, and many physicists have said they traded in, you know, their their three million dollar Breakthrough Prize for a, you know, one million dollar or a fraction of a million, you know, three hundred thousand dollar one third share of the Nobel Prize. And I think that shows you the allure of it, the luster of it. And what do all monopolies want to do? They want to maintain their monopoly and their dominance. And I think eventually, unless it's regulated in some sense, and I, and I see some hints of that happening with this scandal, sex scandal, uh, with the Nobel Prize in literature, because the king of Sweden is now personally involved in this scandal, hoping to rectify it. So maybe the king can, can also spend some time in the physics prize, uh, because I think for its own good, the Nobel Prize must be reformed. And I lay out specific ways to do so in my book. Yeah, I mean, you talk about a, a number of specific things. One thing I want to I want to highlight is the Nobel Prize uh, was awarded in in times uh, in different times than we exist now, and because of that, it highlights societal problems that were embedded in in science. The fact that so few women have won the Nobel Prize is not a reflection of 
an accurate reflection of women's contributions to science. It is a prejudice that has been built into the award for a long time. Are there, uh, of all the things you listed, are there some that you feel like need to be enacted first and foremost, or should we as a scientific community start moving beyond the prize as, as something that matters uh, in the context of modern science? Look, in the book, I talk about how, you know, uh, I was a, uh, always kind of laughed at the story in the, in the Old Testament, the so-called golden calf incident where, you know, these supposedly smart uh uh, fellow Jews were were leaving Egypt and they saw these plagues and they saw the sea split. I mean, if you take it seriously, then, you know, just a few weeks later, they bow down and worship a golden calf. And I thought how stupid that was um, because, you know, how, how could somebody who's intelligent, you know, bow down to a God that they themselves made out of gold? And then came March, you know, uh, of, of 2017, just about a year ago. I'd finished the manuscript. I'd submitted the first draft. And Duncan Haldane came to UCSD with his Nobel Prize. And he showed it off, and he was very proud of it. And afterwards, people were there, and they were taking pictures of it, and they were taking selfies, and they were kissing it. Nobody bowed down to it, but but everybody just wanted to touch it. And it just it just made me think of an idol. And then all of a sudden, it was in my hands, and, and, and there's my iPhone. And, and there I am taking a picture of me, a selfie at this Nobel Prize that I've been you know complaining about in my book for over a year. And I just realized right then and there that, you know, even atheists, even non-secular you know, scientists need to have something that they aspire to and that, and that may be elevated to this idolatrous status. Um, and so I don't think the Nobel Prize is going away anytime soon, but I think scientists should be aware of what it's doing to their fellow scientists. As you said, women, you know, just don't seem to be able to win it. And you have to ask, well, why is that? Well, one reason I discovered in the process of being a nominator of the Nobel Prize winners was that you know previous winners are able to nominate future winners for the rest of their lives. That means that if you're a Nobel Prize, if your PhD advisor has a Nobel Prize, you're like five times more likely to win a Nobel Prize than just a rank and file, you know, non-Nobelist, you know, mentored graduate student. Uh, so what happens when no women win it for 50 years, as the case has been since Mario Mayer won it in 1963? Well, you know, there are A, no more role models or no living female Nobel winning laureates that can be role models. And then they can also, you know, mentor students that can benefit from this noblesse oblige, as I call it, uh, where they can have a higher shot of winning the Nobel Prize themselves. So there's very concrete structural problems within it. And I think those need to change. And I think that society, you know, perhaps needs to reevaluate the way that they look at these accolades and honors. Uh, because, you know, if you go to if you go to my university, I mean, right here in San Diego, we have a street called Nobel Drive. And that intersects with another street called Le Bon Drive, which is Nobel spelled backwards. I mean, it's literally built into the fabric of society around me. And I don't think San Diego's you know, any more of an intellectual place than New York City or anywhere else. So I think it's penetrated so deep into society that it really need, has a special obligation to be reformed. You're a human as much as you are a physicist. So when the prizes are announced again next year, uh, what are you going to feel? And, and how do you think um, people, especially our listeners, should think when they hear the announcement? Well, I mean, I would love to feel that my book 
make an impact. Uh, I think it won't make an impact for for a while, if at all. I hope it, it stimulates a conversation. I think, as I said, I think the Nobel Prize uh, at its best can be a harmless uh, game or, you know, kind of like uh, staying up to see who wins an election or wins the lottery or something like that. You know, there's not really that much, you know, day-to-day harm. But if they stop and think critically about this, the way that the Nobel Prize is affecting their fields, I, I would like them to, to at least think as to what is this doing to, to younger people? I mean, I really wrote the book for the, you know, as a letter to a young physicist, you know, what, what should you aspire to? And I remember getting an email from a young lady who had read my book and she told me that uh, an early draft of the book, and she told me, you know, Brian, I really wish that I had your book when I was back in college because I, I had to leave my, uh, the astronomy program that I was a part of. And, and I said, why? And, and she said, well, my father was a scientist and he said, only, you're only a good scientist if you win the Nobel Prize. And I just wish I had my, your book back then to give to him. And it made me feel really good that, that, you know, that people will perhaps read this book and perhaps see, as I say, that the real prize is the science that we get to do. It's the journey. It's not this destination of getting to Stockholm. On that beautiful note, Brian Keating, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It's been a real pleasure, Keyshawn. So I know he just wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize, but it seems to me a bit of a specious argument to say that science is really about winning the Nobel, that that really is the carrot uh, that most scientists have in front of them. I mean, I I don't know of any scientists who go into science in order to win a Nobel Prize. I mean, we kind of joke about it, and certainly it would be like the culmination of a great career. But seriously, everybody knows that there is a lot of hubris and a lot of luck that would go into that. Uh, And I don't think anybody starts out with that as their prime motivator. Yeah, I agree with that. I I, I don't think any scientist I know, even ones that have won the Nobel Prize, would say they got into science because of this. But it is a really big deal. Um, Even though it carries less money than the Breakthrough Prize and other prizes, it's the one, it's the most prestigious award in all of science. And, you know, one might say it might be the most prestigious prize in all of the world. Like Oscars, all of that kind of stuff seems to waver alongside the Nobel Prize because it's a a legacy award. So I kind of understand his point from that perspective that they are really, really important. There's a couple other places that I think the argument falls down in the sense that he kind of intimates in the book that there were a few set of people that review uh, the Nobel Prize that that are able to nominate. And it's much broader than he seems to indicate. In fact, every scientist in Sweden is able to nominate a Nobel, uh, someone for the Nobel Prize, which I thought was kind of a cool perk of being a scientist in Sweden, I guess. But when it comes down to, do you feel like the prize needs reforms? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a tough question to answer because I, I again, I think that the, the prize is wonderful. And I think that it, you know, it is it is a career maker is a reputation maker. It's like climbing Mount Everest used to be, <laughs> right? I mean, now, there are a lot of people that have climbed Mount Everest. So it doesn't seem quite as impressive. Uh, the Nobel Prize still retains that that, you know, impressiveness to it. Um, but again, I, I just don't think it's that important in science. I mean, I think that it's, it's nice and it gets press and and there's a there's a you know a soap opera around the the call uh, you know 3 a.m. that comes from Sweden and 
you know, everyone, you know, it's exciting. It's it's like watching, you know, a, a America's Next Top Model or The Voice live, but for science. So, yeah, that's interesting. But it's not like we spend the rest of the year worrying about it. You know what I mean? It's like for a few weeks in the fall, it's exciting. And then we go back to doing science. I have never heard America's Next Top Model and the Nobel Prize in the same <laughs> sentence. And that's going to stick with me for a while. I kind of agree. Like, I don't think the Nobel Prize is important to science, but I do think it's really, really important to scientists and the institutions they work for. And yes, you, it is in a, like a big deal for those three to six weeks. But what else like grinds science to a halt more than the Nobel Prize announcement? So... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, and maybe I'm coming from a place where I just feel like I have zero chance of ever winning a Nobel Prize, and I still consider myself a good scientist. If you have a zero chance, I have a negative chance. So I mean, <laughs> but and you know, you know, and I, and and I, I think that's true for a lot of people, like who in in particular fields. Like there are just so many fields that are, are just very very unlikely to to ever get that. But I, again, I don't think it's a reflection of merit in that sense. I think that it's a reflection of uh, a combination of luck and serendipity and merit, uh, for sure. But there's that element of winning the lottery. I mean, that's why we say we win the Nobel Prize. You don't earn the Nobel Prize. You win it. Fair enough. I, I will say, though, I think I, I think it's weird that there isn't one for math and other, you know, uh, topical areas around sort of science and, and STEM generally. And that's just sort of, our, you know, artifacts of Alfred Nobel's will. I feel like they, that should exist just for consistency's sake. The one ref, reform, reform is probably a strong word for this, is that I do think that propagation of the lone genius idea um I, I want to see that um, evaporate over time. And I think the winners recently have done a good job of saying, like, I didn't do this alone, especially with some of the physics prizes. So some sort of I would love to see the Nobel Committee acknowledge how many people contributed to this, whether they were alive or dead uh, when it comes to some of these big announcements, because I did feel watching last year that LIGO announcement, why Ron Drever's mess, uh, name didn't come up more, because uh, you know, he was the um, the head of that project for for decades. And so I realize, you know, he can't do anything with the prize, but I wanted to see that name listed. Uh, and in so doing, I think they will recognize more women and people of color that have contributed to these projects. And that acknowledgement um, will probably go a long way. I mean, I, I totally agree with you in the sense that I think, yes, I think that acknowledgement should should come in some more obvious form than it does now, which is usually just in the speech that the person makes. And you have to kind of rely on the person having enough humility to include other people in their speech. And that doesn't always happen. But I also think the Nobel Prize is about telling the story of scientists. And so there has to be characters in that story. Um, there have to be characters. And and if and so that's why I think like just saying, well, look, we're going to we're going to award this to the thousand researchers that work at CERN, you know, to me that that loses is one important aspect of the Nobel, which is the sense that it's a story about people. So on that note, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, now more important to us than ever as we've left uh, the Mother Jones mothership, uh, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. And all of you new supporters, 
uh, who have come online since uh, we, we left Mother Jones. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Remember that you get ad-free episodes at $5 or more per month. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, who you think should win the Nobel Prize this coming fall or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. I am accepting nominations for the award, I will just say. Uh, I wouldn't decline. I'll just put it out there. Fair enough. You can also listen to our weekly recap of Science in the News called Up to Date that comes out every Friday. So look for that in your feed. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. This episode is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Want to expand your potential with over 65,000 courses starting at just $11.99? Udemy can help you develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Visit udemy inquiring or download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere. That's Udemy slash inquiring. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.